Welcome once again to It's All Relative, the podcast that examines crime and its interaction with the family. In the previous episode, we introduced the Malauskas family and talked about the bombing terrorism being rained down on the city of New York in the 1950s. If you do not recognize any of what I just said, you have somehow gotten off track. Mad bomber? Nope. Well, go back one episode and listen to that first. I suppose I should give the trigger warning. We talk about tough shit here. Be advised. I'm not trying to be a bitch. Really, I'm not. But what part of true crime suggests a G rating? Own your choices. Because any idiot can have a podcast, I am your host. My name is Kaylee. The platters will set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender. The last episode ended with the Journal American beginning a written conversation with the Mad Bomber. The key to that conversation, continuing, meant the newspaper could not print the bomber's letters until January 10, 1957. It was a tough call, but Berkson, the paper's publisher, decided they had to do the honorable thing and hold the letter. But they also decided that there was no reason they couldn't try to continue the conversation. The last thing they did before the episode ended was print a slightly veiled notice in the journal's announcement section and hoped the bomber would reply. Meanwhile, the police and the city are enjoying the detente. They are also trying really hard to capture him before the mid-January deadline. They tried to focus on the clues which they thought pinpointed where the bomber came from. They had his letters postmarked White Plains in Westchester County. They also had a dialectical quirk in the word for the length of pipe the bombs were made of. Most plumbers in the five boroughs called it line pipe coupling, but the bomber had called it well coupling, which they also determined was the word used in Westchester. Quote from Incendiary by Michael Cannell. The police believed, or hoped anyway, that the discrepancy in terminology had led them to the bomber's hometown, or at least his county. So, on January 3rd, Bomb Squad Detective Michael Lynch gathered 75 police officials from 39 Westchester Police Departments at the Columned Foursquare Westchester County Office Building in White Plains to announce the search was shifting to their precincts. In the following days, an occupying army of New York cops fanned out among Mount Vernon, Rye, and other Westchester towns to check the handwriting of 357,000 driver's license applications, 26,000 court files, 150,000 jury lists, 20,000 pistol permits, 15,000 Supreme Court cases, and 9,000 judgments in the Westchester County Clerk's Office. In addition, the police cunningly obtained handwriting samples from all Con Ed employees living in Westchester, 
by asking them to fill out bogus civil defense forms. Card by card, sheet by sheet, they checked the forms against samples of the bomber's handwriting with its ards made in a continuous cursive with a little loop in the center, Y's that looked like a V with a serif flourish, G's ending in double horizontal bars. That German G, one detective said. You couldn't miss that anywhere. It was tedious, exacting, eye-glazing work. The hunt proceeded like a marathon game of bingo with men singing out when they found a match. Within three days, investigators turned up several hundred possible matches. They delivered samples of each suspect's handwriting to the crime lab, where Joe McNally and other handwriting experts whittled the suspect pool to 42. They opened files on each man and a small infantry of detectives working in shifts, trailed all 42 day and night. One by one, alibis or exculpatory information disqualified suspects from the list until finally none were left to follow. End quote. By the 10th of January, the police had located two potential suspects, but neither proved to be the culprit. The Journal American held out for a reply from the bomber, but in the wait, they ended up scooped by another paper. The managing editor of the World Telegram and Sun discovered Berkson's message to the bomber in the Journal American, getting confirmation from an unknown member of the NYPD. Quoting again, On the afternoon of January 7th, the headline, Mad Bomber's Letter Hints Brief Truce, ran on the front page of the World Telegram and Sun. The accompanying article dropped the bombshell. An unnamed New York newspaper was corresponding with FP. The article said that police believed the letter to be genuine, and it quoted the Journal American's secret message in full. The paper that received the letter, the police source said, is still trying to make contact with the bomber again. Berkson found himself in the infuriating position of standing by while his primary rival snatched the most precious scoop of his career. To make matters worse, the fragile trust Berkson had forged with FP was all but shattered by an article written in his own newsroom that quoted the police official describing the bomber as a psychopathic enemy of society. Whether editors printed the article with Berkson's approval is not known. Whatever the case, FP, that's the bomber, remember, he signed all of his letters FP, took it as a form of betrayal. He responded with outrage in a letter that landed in the newsroom four days later. You insist upon poisoning the minds of people against me. You put me in the worst position, deliberately. Then you ask that I confide in you? I have been betrayed once again. I do not trust you. You have the choice of placing the main contents of the letter I sent you before the public. Or you had better have a very good reason for not doing so. Your time is running out. Are you going to tell the truth, or will you betray the people? I will buy a paper on Thursday. The responsibility is yours. End quote. The 9th of January, Police Commissioner Kennedy went to the Journal American offices to meet with Bergson. There was a real fear the bomber would resume his terrorizing with a vengeance. The decision was made to print the Mad Bomber's letter, minus the parts which Kennedy redacted. Berkson also got the art department to alter the letter so that once it was printed in the paper, no one could tell it was written in pencil or that the letter was unfolded. That would help weed out the hoaxes. The paper added its own response, written by publisher Berkson and Police Commissioner Kennedy, quote, Please make yourself clear enough for us to understand. We cannot help you air your grievances unless you help us ascertain what they are. 
We realize, too, that time is running out on our chances to be in touch with each other. You will get best results by answering quickly. Two days later, FP dropped his response into a White Plains mailbox. I was injured on the job at a consolidated Edison plant. As a result, I am adjudged, totally, permanently disabled. I did not receive any aid of any kind from company that I did not pay for myself while fighting for my life. I insisted on hearings. My case was marked closed four times. The Con Edison kept insisting place my claim before workman's compensation that they, Con Ed, would not block any effort on my part to get compensation. They blocked my every effort. They even tried with perjurers. I typed tens of thousands of words, about 800,000. Nobody cared. I got a sample of what you call our American system of justice. You people asked me to surrender myself. Well, sir, who is really guilty, you or I? He closed on a conciliatory note, extending the truth another few weeks. A lot depends on what can be done by March 1st by you people, end quote. On January 15, 1957, the journal American published an abbreviated version of the bomber's second letter and another response asking for more information about his compensation case. The newspaper also sent a reporter out to White Plains to try for more information about the man who sent the letter. The mail clerk told the reporter that the customer was about 50, a smiling man with a jolly air and a round face wearing a gray fedora and a dark top coat. When the paper told the NYPD, they took the clerk to headquarters so he could spend hours leafing through mugshots. He was unable to find the man, but they were able to draw a sketch of the bomber while the clerk was there. Whether a publicity stunt or an actual desire to help the people, the state labor board promised to help the bomber if a miscarriage of justice had occurred. They started combing through their files all the way back to 1914 to see if they could find a case that matched what the bomber had described. Con Ed also returned to their files, not wanting to be outdone by another organization. This time, they both had a better idea of what they were looking for. The bomber said the accident happened on September 5th, 1931, that he had gotten pneumonia and then TB. Con Ed had previously claimed that they did not keep closed cases. Now they admitted that there was a room full of closed cases that they called the dead files. This time, the focus began with those files, but the cases only went so far back as 1940. They denied having any files older than that. Con Ed did have those older files, but they didn't want the police privy to what was in those files. In secret, Con Ed tasked four employees with sorting through these troublesome files. Without the knowledge of the police, when the police asked for the older files, the secret team had about 200 files left to sort through from the original 1,000. From Incendiary, quote, At 4.20 p.m., 40 minutes before the work week's end, a Con Ed clerk named Alice Kelly saw the keywords injustice and permanent disability scrawled in red ink at the top of a file. The paperwork inside looked unremarkable at first. It contained the same application forms and claim letters found in hundreds of other files. Scanning the contents, she noted that the company had hired a George Metesky as a generator wiper in 1929 at the Hellgate power plant. A boiler explosion had injured him on September 5, 1931. He was dropped from payroll a year later and submitted a compensation claim in 1934. 
The file contained six of Metesky's letters, none of which sounded sinister or violent until Con Ed rejected his appeal in 1936. At that point, his tone turned menacing. In one letter, he threatened to take injustice into my own hands for Con Ed's dastardly deeds. Kelly recognized the stilted, belligerent phrases, end quote. Con Ed called the police. The police, however, were worried about making another embarrassing mistake. They decided to do some more research before racing out to pick up the paperwork or to arrest Metesky. They found no driver's license under that name, but Metesky lived in Waterbury, Connecticut. NYPD sent a request to the cops in Waterbury to check the guy out. The Waterbury cops find that there are Malauskases living at the address, but no Metesky's. However, many of the Lithuanians living in that neighborhood had Americanized their names without going through the actual paperwork. Additionally, what seems an obvious bit of fact is that many people rent rooms or a portion of a residence without having an official record of that address. So there was every reason to believe that this could still be the residence of George Metesky. Connecticut cops went out to the house, pretending to be investigating a hit and run. When they got there, both names, Malauskas and Metesky, were on the mailbox. The detective decided to try to get some information from the neighbors first. The neighbors had given the house the demonym, the crazy house. Aloof was the nicest word they had for the family. George himself was described as an invalid and a loner. Quote, a neighbor explained that Metesky and his unmarried older sisters, Anna and May, occupied the ground floor of the crudely painted three-story home. Boarders rented the two floors above them, though none stayed long. The sisters shut off the tenants' water if they squandered too much on laundering or mopping floors. Televisions had to be turned off by 10 p.m., when a tenant's mother died, the Metesky's denied the bereaved the use of the house's front staircase. The coffin had to be carried out the back way, the same as the trash. The sisters banned kids from playing in the yard, and they met tenants with a scowl while compulsively sweeping the porch and dusting the picket fence George had built in front of the house. I'd knock on the front door and hand them the check, a tenant said. They'd take it and slam the door in my face. When a black woman named Alice McDaniel moved nearby, the Metesky's threatened her family. He and his two sisters came up on my porch and shouted at us through the door that they hated us because we were colored and because we had children, she said. He was especially mean and vicious. He wanted us to move or else. End quote. After comparing handwriting samples and talking with the neighbors and some former tenants, the police believed Metesky fit Russell's profile of the mad bomber. About 10 o'clock at night, they had a judge sign an arrest warrant, and they made ready to go get Metesky. At not quite midnight on the night of January 21, 1957, detectives knocked on the door of the Malauskas' home. The porch light came on and the door opened. A slightly portly man stood in the doorway. He had on glasses and a burgundy pajama set, over which he had on a bathrobe. His hair neatly parted, his top buttoned all the way up. The police told George Metesky that they have a warrant to search the house, that they are investigating a hit and run. George kindly lets them in. When they ask to see his room, George directs them to a hospital coroner's room. It is so neat, it is as if he had been expecting the police to show up at his home at midnight. The police ask if he'd ever been to New York. George nods. They ask him if he'd gone through White Plains. Again, he nods. They hand him a pen and ask him to write his name. 
the distinctive letters appear on the page. They tell him they'd like to see the garage and ask him to get dressed. When George emerges from his room, he is wearing sensible rubber-soled shoes, a necktie with red spots, a brown cardigan, and a double-breasted blue suit, just as Dr. Brussel predicted. The garage was spotless and tidy. On the workbench next to the Daimler sat a metal lathe. You're not here for a hit and run, stated George, not for the first time. He didn't sound worried, afraid, or even puzzled. He sounded certain. Quote, you're looking for more than an accident, Metesky repeated. He spoke in a soft, unaccented voice with awkward double negatives and other slight grammatical lapses, just as Dr. Brussel had anticipated. Detective Michael Lynch looked at Metesky. George, we're from New York. You know why we're here, don't you? Metesky shrugged slightly. He shook his head. I really don't. We think you do, the detectives circled Metesky. He glanced from one to the next. I think I'd better consult an attorney before I say more. Come on, George, Lynch said. Never mind an attorney. Why are we here? Metesky breathed rapidly. His eyes narrowed. His lips curled with a hint of amusement. Finally, he said, I guess it's because you suspect that I am the mad bomber. Maybe you're not so mad, Lynch said. Tell me, George, what does FP stand for? Metesky exhaled. His frown relaxed. Fair play. End quote. The voices eventually woke Anna and May. When they realized what was happening, they began protesting. George is always the perfect gentleman. They could not believe that the brother they had pampered and babied, just like their mother, could have been in the garage building bombs. But they never even peeked in the garage, did they? And they never did anything to make him angry because he always got his way. It's no wonder they never saw his mad side. The police drove George to the Waterbury station. The six-hour interview started at 1.30 in the morning. The detectives laid out the timeline, starting with the 1940 dud found in the Con Ed windowsill. George became quietly giddy as he discussed the units with the interviewers. Units. He seemed to hate calling them bombs. He even added 15 to the already known 32. He talked about the units as an artist would speak of his art. He talked about the timers he used, tiny slivers of cough drops that he eventually replaced with cheap wristwatches. About 2.30 a.m., one Waterbury reporter showed up, somehow having gotten wind of an arrest. Soon, another and then another. A policeman came out and told them there had been an arrest, but there would be no photos until the arrestee was booked. Finally, the Waterbury police captain came out and confirmed that indeed they had the mad bomber. He brought one AP photographer into the cells. That photo was on the front page of the New York Times on January 23, 1957, with the title, Bomber is Booked, Sent to Bellevue for Mental Tests. Give it a goob, people. The AP photo is still the photo of George Metesky. He is beaming as if he were presenting balloons to children in the cancer ward. After the interview was complete, Officer Schmidt went to see Metesky. Schmidt was a member of the bomb squad, and he was tasked with going into the Metesky home to look for bomb parts. But Schmidt was smart. He knew a bomber might have more than just parts. George told him where to look. No bombs, but Schmidt pulled enough parts from behind the soapstone sink to build three bombs. By his arraignment the next day, Anna and May were sheepish and crying when they were allowed to speak with George before he was transferred to New York City. 
They were bewildered when the bomb parts emerged from behind their sink. But it was this moment when George confirmed that yes, he was the bomber. In New York, George was assigned the same attorney as Eberhardt, the man sent to Bellevue six years previously on an evaluation for the same crime. Schmier, the lawyer, essentially did the same thing he did to Eberhardt. He convinced the judge to send George to Bellevue for evaluation. Meanwhile, poor Alice Kelly was being denied the 26000 payment for information leading to the arrest of the bomber. The police were claiming that they had been the ones to find the documents, after, of course, going through back-and-forth denials and obstruction from Con Ed. Con Ed was denying any obstruction, only the need to clear certain things with their lawyers before passing the information along. Commissioner Kennedy was playing politics, trying to mitigate the fact that the police waited a whole weekend to pick up the Metesky files from Con Ed. <coughs> um, er, Metesky's info was one of many leads. <coughs> By the time things were cleared up, Kelly had decided not to accept the 26000 Her mother convinced her it was blood money. The reward was never, well, rewarded. From Incendiary, quote, the afternoon after their brother's arrest, Anna and May put on their best church dresses and drove the Daimler across the Nogtucket River to the downtown Waterbury office of Harry F. Spellman, a prominent local attorney and a former New Haven County prosecutor. The sisters had, by now, accepted that their mild-mannered brother was the bomber, though they refused to blame him for his actions. It is possible that he may have been so upset and aggravated by his suffering that this perhaps bothered him mentally, May said. But if George did anything wrong, he is not responsible. Responsible or not, he would need counsel. They were determined to hire the best possible lawyer, no matter the cost. What we have, they told Spellman, we are more than willing to give to George. We will even sell the house to help him, and we will go live in the poorhouse. Spellman agreed to help but urged them to retain Murray, another Waterbury native, as lead attorney. Murray never fully explained why he agreed to defend murderers and rapists, except to say that he was born with a constitutional pity for those in trouble. In his view, the man or woman on trial was always an underdog, no matter the circumstances. He is but an individual, and opposing him is the organized might of society. The forces of law are set in motion to destroy the defendant. The only one who can stand between him and destruction is his lawyer. He often agreed to take on defendants that he personally despised out of sympathy for their families. I always remember that it isn't the man in the death house who suffers. He may have a fine brother, sister, or a wife and children. Although they are blameless, they go on suffering for years. Murray may have agreed to represent Metesky for his sisters. Murray's upbringing was only marginally different from that of George. His father was a five-dollar-a-day mechanic in a Waterbury metal rolling mill. When Murray was young, explosions in the local dynamite factory left dozens of workers dead or crippled. The widows and survivors received almost nothing. The courts were controlled by the mill owners, so there was no legal recourse. Families became destitute. Those things impressed me, Murray said. As I grew older, I began to conclude that the benefits of law were only for the well-to-do, and the poor didn't have a chance. Yes, Murray told Anna and May, he would defend their brother. End quote. On January 30th, a grand jury indicted Metesky on 47 counts. If convicted on all counts, he could receive a maximum sentence of 815 years in prison. 
Murray asked for a postponement so that a thorough and fair assessment of George's mental state could be given. The postponement was granted. But after four weeks, Judge John Mullen could wait no longer. Known as Mr. Death in legal circles, Mullen was staunchly conservative. Known to give the harshest sentences and airy very against everyone getting away with criminal behavior because the psychiatrists say they are crazy. Mullen called an unscheduled hearing and demanded that Bellevue either send a physical report or one of the actual psychiatrists to verbally testify to the mental state of George Metesky. Because, you see, Mullen believed that criminals were generally bad people who knew they were doing wrong, and this new trend in the judicial system was mollycoddling everyone. Basically, from the mid-19th century, a person was considered insane if they didn't understand right from wrong. Not even three years before George Metesky's fate was to be decided by the courts, a landmark case changed that test. Where once the poorly defined standards of right and wrong were decided by the courts, now a great weight was given to the mental health practitioners to use their training to decide just what mental state of the accused was. Mullen hated the basic tenets of the 1954 Durham ruling. Durham took the decision of insanity out of the hands of the courts. It also added what Mullen saw as a significant delay to the prosecution of the defendant. No one, of course, was prepared to face the judge. Mullen didn't care. Murray, already in court on another matter, had to send an associate, Irving Greenberg, who tried to explain that his complete lack of knowledge of the case made him an inappropriate counsel for Metesky. Mullen just stared at him and asked if there would be anything else. Bellevue psychiatrist Dr. Cassidy took the stand. Quote, the psychiatrist explained that though Metesky's comportment was calm and agreeable, the Bellevue team believed him to be a paranoid schizophrenic. He detailed Metesky's homicidal fantasies and delusional belief that his bombing safeguarded mankind from malignant forces. Did Metesky understand his actions? George Mullen asked. I do not think that he knew the nature and quality or significance, Cassidy answered. Mullen squinted and stroked his chin. Did he know, in your opinion, that exploding a bomb was exploding a bomb? Or did he think he was eating an apple pie? Yes, I think he knew that. Mullen's voice grew louder, as if to drive home a point. Do you think that he knew that it was against the accepted rules of conduct in the society in which he lived? No, I don't think so. Did he tell you he was eating cake to get even with society? No, he didn't tell me he was eating cake. Reporters seated in the press gallery noticed the lawyers stiffen in surprise. The proceeding had taken a strange turn. Judge Mullen's queries, delivered so stridently from the bench, expressed his disdain for the psychiatrists who were, under Durham, supposed to play the crucial role in evaluating Metesky's state of mind. Even more surprising, Judge Mullen's line of questioning focused on Metesky's ability to distinguish right from wrong, suggesting he would revert to the McNaughton definition of insanity. Was it possible that Judge Mullen would use Metesky to turn back the judicial clock? Judge Mullen now shifted his gaze to Metesky, who stood smiling wanly at the side of the courtroom. With a nod to Greenberg, Judge Mullen demanded that the defendant enter a plea. Greenberg jumped to his feet. His face burned and his voice became shrill. Metesky could not enter a plea. Greenberg insisted. 
until the psychiatric report was finalized and submitted. To do so would be a miscarriage of justice. Again, Mullen demanded a plea. Again, Greenberg refused. Judge Mullen shrugged. As judge, he would enter a plea of not guilty on the defendant's behalf. He then ordered Metesky to stand trial for his crimes. The courtroom fell silent. It appeared Metesky would not be excused on account of insanity after all. Judge Mullen's voice broke the shock of the silence. What the doctors say about sanity is one thing. I have formed an opinion. The report is no deterrent at this stage of the game. All delays in cases of this sort are unwise. No harm will be done to the defendant until he is tried and convicted by a jury of his peers. A great deal of disservice to the community can be done by dragging this case along. With that, Judge Mullen confirmed that his courtroom had no use for psychiatrists. End quote. I wish, dear listener, that I could tell you that Mullen was an anomaly among judges, that most judges are unbiased and try to be fair, and that Mullen was at least reprimanded for his hubris. But I cannot. So, George will be left bewildered, awaiting his trial, with Mullen fully prepared to make an example of him. Tune in next week. Can you say tune for a podcast? Anyway, tune in for the exciting conclusion to the case of the New York City Mad Bomber. If you like the podcast, subscribe, hit like, and spread the word amongst yourselves. Leave a glowing review on whatever service you listen to. However, if you hate the pod and everything I stand for, please leave that review with the Is We Dumb podcast, where Fred and Marty will ridicule your one star and leave listeners peeing with laughter. Elvis will sing you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative.